0: Second, Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse 12, Peter continues writing for this reason. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though, you know, and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent To stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven. When we were with him on the holy mountain, one of the key themes in the second epistle of Peter is the theme of knowledge. Chapter one begins with. A discussion of the gift of knowledge in verses one through four and then our growth in knowledge in verses five through eleven. And then it concludes with the ground of knowledge or the certainty of how we can know what we believe in verses twelve through twenty one. It's my privilege to be able to talk literally with. Hundreds, even thousands of people on my radio program, and many times the subject of salvation comes up. We'll talk about God. We'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about worldviews and world religions. But many times the subject of salvation emerges. Many people are either unsure or unable to articulate what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. To be saved from sin, to be cleansed from guilt, to be made right with God through Jesus Christ, their salvation experience, their encounter with the living Lord of the universe means so little to them that they're left unchanged in their thinking or living. And they rightly wonder whether or not they've even had a right experience with the Lord and whether or not they really are born again. I want you to contrast that just for a moment with the boldness with the confidence and with the assurance of Peter. Any reading of the New Testament, you read the book of James, you read the Gospel of John, you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you read these people whose faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ changed them thoroughly and completely. They stood for Jesus with confidence and assurance and unwavering faith in the face of deep hardship and ongoing deprivation, anyone, anyone, even the skeptic and the unbeliever who is willing to read the New Testament, They may not be convinced of the miracles in the Bible. They may not be convinced of the claims of Christ. They may not be convinced of the miracles, but who can read the New Testament fairly and at least be willing to concede that Peter and James and John believed what they wrote? Here's the big question. Does God expect that same kind of confidence and trust and assurance from me and from you? You have to understand, Peter will present three basic qualities of the Christian life that will become central characteristics in the life of the believer. And that first is once again a deep conviction of the truth in verse 12. A confident hope for the future in verses 13 through 14. A firm basis for faith in verses 15 through 18. Truth and hope and faith. These are the necessary ingredients. If you're going to be able to face the challenges of an unbelieving world, of a skeptical world, if you're going to be able to stand the onslaughts of doubt that will arise in your own heart or the arguments of skepticism that begin to emerge. And in this passage, Peter will relate the revelation of God that was given to him. That he will die a martyr's death for Jesus Christ in verses 12 through 14. Peter then requires the reader to remember the great spiritual truths that he gives in the letters in verse 15. He'll remember... Hearing the voice of God, he'll remember seeing the sight on the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 16 and the sound of God's voice in verses 17 and 18. Peter was an eyewitness to the splendor of Jesus, not just his life, not just his death, but his resurrection. He heard the voice of God declaring full approval. Of the identity, the mission, and the destiny of Jesus. And so it begins with the revelation to the apostle. Look again in verse 12. He writes, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. You know, in the truth project, there is a very great line. It says, why is it that we forget what we're supposed to remember and we remember what we're supposed to forget? Peter has just given a list of the characteristics necessary for personal growth in verses five through eleven. The list included faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and love in verses five through seven. Peter admonished the saints to add to their faith these things. And then he talked about the power of these things in verses eight through eleven. And now Peter will discuss The great importance of these things, just because we have a good foundation in the simple truths of the gospel, doesn't mean that we don't need reminders. And by the way, the words translated remind you always is a single word in the original language, in the Greek language. And many of you are going to be familiar with this great big world. It's hypo mimnesco Hypo is a word that you you know from visiting the doctor's office if you've ever been stuck with a hypodermic needle, a hypo extends the medicine that's in the needle. Mimnesco is a word that meant to bring to remembrance or to remember. We get even the word mnemonics from it. It's memory devices. Peter believed the followers of Jesus should know the basic doctrines of 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 the Christian teaching and so when he says I will remind you it carries with it the weight I'm going to remind you now and I'm going to keep reminding you and I'm going to remind you over and over and over again in the first service my wife was sitting in the front row and I said it's like my wife for 52 weeks out of the year you would think that I would remember on Tuesday that's trash day but every week she goes today is the day We take out the trash. Now, do you know why she reminds me every week? So I can do it. That's exactly right. And I'm grateful for the reminder. And see, that's part of the point that is being made. Peter believed that the followers of Jesus... Needed to be reminded, as J. Gresham Machen concisely defined it at the turn of the last century, Christianity is life founded upon doctrine. He writes a creed, he points out, is not a mere expression of Christian experience, but on the contrary, it's a setting forth of those facts upon which the experience is based and doctrine has fallen out of favor in many churches. There are some people who think it's unnecessary or even divisive to teach doctrine. People will say, oh, just point people to Jesus. Just point people to Jesus. And I'm more than happy to point people to Jesus. But I do have to ask and answer the question, which Jesus do you want me to point them to? Do you want me to point them to the Jesus of the Mormons, who's the spirit brother of Lucifer? Do you want me to point them to the... The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who is the 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 archangel Michael. Should I point them to the Jesus of Oprah? Who believes that Jesus was a good man, possibly be even the greatest man who ever lived. But he was only a man. Or should I point them to the Jesus of Dan Brown? who believe that Jesus went through a series of unfortunate circumstances, found himself dead. But before that, he was married to Mary Magdalene, impregnated her, who gave life to a series of children who would become the heirs of the Merovingian Empire in in ancient Europe. When a person says, I believe in Jesus... It's okay for you to say, which Jesus, which Jesus do you believe in? Is, is this the Jesus of the New Testament who died on the cross, who literally rose from the grave? The sinner must have a basic understanding that Jesus is the Son of God and that God Himself took on human form to provide the sacrifice for sin. That Jesus rose from the dead to break death's power. And clearly someone doesn't have to have a complete knowledge of every major Christian doctrine to enter into the salvation experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to know At least the basics that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Peter exhorts the saints to embrace a deep conviction of this present truth. No wonder Paul exhorted Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Clearly, doctrine is necessary to inform us how we may be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, it remains Jesus Christ who does the saving. The real Jesus, the Jesus who rose from the dead. Augustus William and Julius Charles Hare wrote, quote, the question is not whether a doctrine is beautiful, but whether or not it's true. When we wish to go to a place, we don't ask whether the road leads through pretty country, but whether it's the right road, unquote. I like that. Some cults say, I don't care which road it is. Just put me on the scenic route. Well, what is the scenic route? It's the one where I don't have to repent of my sin, where I don't have to turn from my unbelief, where I am still welcome to embrace My sinful lifestyle. Some cults want to steer away from biblical integrity, away from biblical authority, away from historical Christianity, a destination that leads to a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different salvation. But make no mistake about it, if anyone ever says to you that you're saved by grace, plus whatever they think they're wrong. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can't despise the fact that their ultimate destination is marked gross error. And so, in verse thirteen, look what Peter says. Yes, I think it 's right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you the word tent by the way, is Skinomon from the verb skino it meant a temporary dwelling place. Some of you who were born and who all you 've ever known is the body that you happen to be in right at this very moment might be thinking. Well, it doesn't seem like a temporary place. It seems like a permanent place, but make no mistake about it. Your teens are going to live if you do live, if you make it to nineteen, trust me, you're right you're at the top. It's never going to get better than that. Maybe you might continue to mature between 20 and 27, but there's going to come a point where growth stops, maturity ends, and you start going downhill. And guess what? The tent's going to start to unravel. The cords are going to start to unwind. And you're going to discover something that it really is a temporary place. Peter writes to stir you up. It literally means to wake up, to arouse. It means to deliberately motivate. And Peter is trying to deliberately motivate the believers to godly living and godly loving and godly activities. I like that idea when he says, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up, to wake you up. You know, when I was a kid growing up, my mom would come into their own. Wake up. Time to go to school. I hated that. I just go, Mom, okay, all right, okay, I'll get up when I can figure out what I'm going to wear to school today. I know you've never done that, so you're off the hook. But I would just lay there and I'd go, okay, what should I wear? Because I could care less what I'm going to wear. I heard the story of a a man. His wife said, wake up, it's time to go to church. And the man said, I don't want to go to church. Why don't you want to go to church? Because the people there, there are people there who don't like me. You have to go to church. Why do I have to go to church? Gino, you're the pastor. (laughs) The need to understand, the need to grow in the truth, doesn't stop when a person is saved from their sin and reconciled to the Father. Finding out what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and our relationship to him is a lifelong journey. Learning about the ministry of Jesus. If you spent the rest of your life just simply saying, I am going to study what the Bible has to say about Jesus, about intercessory prayer. I'm going to just spend my life trying to figure out what the Bible says and what the Bible means and what the Bible wants me to do. How thrilling it is to learn that Jesus is our How invigorating the experience, the personal power of the Holy Spirit. How amazing are the doctrines of salvation and justification and sanctification and glorification. When I first got saved, I was breathless. To try and find out what the Bible had to say when I got saved, I remember a person said to me, read the gospel of John, because in it you're going to learn about your savior. And I opened up my Bible and I began to read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And as I continued to read throughout the gospel of John, I over and over again came to the conclusion. How come nobody ever told me this? How come nobody ever said this was in the Bible and that I could know this? I remember the story of a farmer and the farmer's assistant and the farmer was talking about the virtues and the qualities and and the realities that go along with regular personal Bible study. And the farmer's assistant said, why do I have to read the Bible? Why do I have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John over and over and over again? If I've read it once, if I've gone through it once, who cares? I, I know this. You're saying what I already know. Why should I do this? Why should I keep reading the same thing over and over and over again? And the farmer said, you see that bushel basket right there? He goes, yeah. And it was filthy and it was dirty because it was used over and over and over again. He said, take it down to the creek and wash it. And so he took it down to the creek and he dumped it in the water and he said do it again and he did it again and he said do it again and he did it again and he said do it again and he did it again and he said what do you see happening to this basket? He says it's being cleansed. It's becoming clean. When you open up your Bible you don't simply learn new things. Things about Jesus, if that's the only thing that happened, it would be worth it. But guess what? There's a process of cleansing that begins to take place deep in your heart as you soak in the things of God. What happens to the Christian who lapses into the old patterns of a life lived apart from Jesus? What happens to the person who neglects personal Bible reading and prayer and study? What happens to the person who neglects friendship with Jesus and fellowship with the saints? What happens to the person who simply goes through the motions of religion and goes through the motions of prayer? What happens to the person who allows those little thorns to? To stab them deeply and wound them ever so slightly. J.C. Ryle wrote Backsliding generally first begins with the neglect of private prayer. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote. You who have the most familiarity with Christ and enjoy the most holy fellowship with him may soon become the very leaders of the hosts of Satan if your Lord withdraws his grace. David's eyes go astray, and the sweet psalmist of Israel becomes the shameless adulterer who robs Uriah of his wife. Samson one day slays a thousand of his enemies with the right might of his arm and the valor of his heart. Another day his honor is betrayed. His locks are shorn. His eyes are put out by a strumpet's treacherous wiles. How soon are the mighty fallen? That's in a day when see, they, they don't have radio and TV back in those days. So they could they could afford to sit around and think of wonderful ways to communicate the image. There's an old hymn by a Catherine Hankey. Some of you know it. It goes, tell me the story Slowly. That I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away by noon. Tell me the same old story. When you have cause to fear that the world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Yes, and when that world's glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes me whole. Tell me the story. Tell me again. Tell me again. Tell me that there's forgiveness for my sin. Tell me there's hope for the future. Tell me again. Tell me that death doesn't end at all. Tell me that the future is intact because Christ is on the throne. We still need memory aids. We still need reminders. We need reminders that. Grace isn't a license for immoral living. We need reminders that knowing the gospel and the basic Christian teaching is never a substitute for disobeying God's commands and applying the promises of God to our lives. Peter reminds them stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Remind yourself of the truths of the gospel, even though they've heard it over and over and over again. Reestablish yourself in the basics of the truth. And then Peter writes in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Do you know what Peter's deeply, deeply, deeply aware of? He's deeply aware of his impending death. Most scholars date this book Late at 66 A.D., it might be as early as 65 A.D., from 66 A.D. to 71 A.D., already it may have happened that the Jews have already overthrown the Roman governors in the province of Judea. From 66, when he is writing this book, four years into the future, one million Jewish People will be obliterated. They will be slaughtered. And the ones who escape will, will be distributed throughout the Mediterranean Rim. Almost certainly the people who are reading this book, when Peter is writing this book, they will number in the people who will die. And Peter isn't just going to die. He's going to die a horrible and a painful death. According to church tradition, Peter would be taken and he would be incarcerated. He would be found guilty. But unlike Paul, who is a Roman citizen who will simply place his head on a Roman chopping block and he will enter into eternity in a split moment, Peter will die Of crucifixion and and because he will die of crucifixion, even at that point, according to church tradition in humility, he says that he isn't worthy to have that kind of noble death, the noble death of his savior. And so he humbly requests that he will be crucified upside down. You know, there's another story. We it's a church tradition. We have no evidence to support it. But in the early years of the church, they would tell the story of Peter's occupation and how the persecution became so profound that they begged him to leave Rome and he got on his donkey and he headed out the Apian Way. And according to the tradition, he was met on the road by a person who looked strangely and substantially exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, taken aback, said, where are you going? And he said, to Rome, to die. And according to church tradition, Peter was overwhelmed and he turned his donkey around and he went back to the place where he would have to face his death. When he says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, the verb is Delo from the adjective Delos. In the ancient world of Greece, when people wanted to inquire of the oracle, they would go to Delos, and there they would ask a question in order to get answers to their question. And so the word meant to make clear, to make abundantly clear. The Lord Jesus has made it abundantly clear what's going to happen to me. The tent is starting to unravel. It's in the sixth decade of the first century, 30 plus years have already gone by since Jesus has died and Peter's in his 60s. Some of you were here when my friend Robert Furrow was teaching on John, chapter 21, and he told the story of how. Peter, James and John and the other apostles and disciples met Jesus on the shores of Galilee after his resurrection in John chapter 21. And Robert talked about how Jesus restored Peter back into ministry. And as he restored him back into ministry, he. Made this. Enigmatic statement in John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus said, most assuredly, or I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. You can take this to the bank. Be assured. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't want to go. Signifying by what manner he would die. And the march of time and the march of ministry and the relentless persecution has brought Peter to that place where he understands fully, finally, that he's going to die. The the issue that's really important for us isn't simply the declaration that he's going to die. The question that you should be asking at this point is how will Peter face his death? Remember what Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Peter is facing his death with confidence, with faith, with certainty. As a matter of fact. In verse 15, look what it says. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter's death isn't his chief concern. The word decease, by the way, is the same word that's used to translate the Old Testament Hebrew for the second book in the Bible. Genesis Exodus. That's that word. It's Exodus. Exodus. The word can be translated departure. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things. What things? The things in verses 5 through 11 about faith. The things about. Diligence. Virtue. Knowledge. Self-control. Perseverance. Godliness. That these things, I will be careful to ensure that you will always have a reminder of these things. And the little letter that he wrote. That you have in your lap. Hopefully you brought your Bible today. This little letter was meant to be read over and over and over. It's not just simply a reminder It is that and more. He wants to make sure that the suffering saints have all of the resources necessary to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to love the Lord Jesus, to serve the Lord Jesus, to continue with the Lord Jesus. And the church still faces the onslaughts of persecution from an unbelieving world. But it will also face the ruthless and relentless onslaught of false teachers and false teaching. And so he leaves them a note. A note that will stand the test of time. It is Peter's confident hope of the future. And here's what you have to understand. Peter's death isn't going to bring about the end of Christianity. It isn't even going to bring about the end of Peter. Oh, make no mistake about it. Peter is alive at this very moment. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Every Christian can share that same calm and confident assurance about their own death. And that's the second question that you should be asking. Not simply how did Peter face his death, but how will I face my death? How will I face my exodus, my departure? Will your deep conviction about the truth, will your confident hope for the future survive you? How will you face it? Death will really take one of two forms. It will be sudden and unexpected. Or you might be one of those people who gets a brief peek into the valley of darkness. You might be one of those people where a doctor says to you, you have this amount of time to live. How will your children? How will your grandchildren remember you? Will they embrace the Jesus that you love? Will they understand. This week, I read some helpful suggestions that you may want to incorporate as a part of your life right now. Talk to your children and grandchildren about the Lord Jesus. Keep it simple. Start a scrapbook that tells the story of faith in your family. Include the important dates and records, baby dedications, baptisms, funeral announcements. Make an audio or a videotape of the real you. Tell the story of how you came to know Jesus and to love Jesus. And it's okay. It's okay to talk about your fear. It's okay to talk about your failure. But remember, when you talk about your fear and your failure. Talk about the grace. Talk about the mercy. Talk about forgiveness. Talk about hope. Talk about the struggles you face and how Jesus has helped you overcome those struggles. Talk about God. Talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in your last will and your last testament. Plan your Christian Funeral. So everyone without doubt or disappointment will make sure they will understand completely where you stood with God and where you stand with Jesus Christ. Make sure that you put in writing in some tangible record. Your assurance of hope in Christ and your hope for heaven. And that Jesus is the eternal source of happiness and life. And look at verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Nothing ruins the truth. Like stretching it. Look what Peter says. I didn't make this up. Hear the phrase. Cunningly devised fables means cleverly inventing false myths or cleverly devised tales or cleverly invented stories. You know what Peter's saying? I'm not making this up. This isn't a myth. It isn't something that we all got together in in order to make ourselves happy. Peter doesn't want to leave a false assurance or communicate wishful thinking. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Peter is going to die. And he's not just simply going to die, but he's going to die under gruesome circumstances. Painful circumstances. Who in their right mind would say he's an old man, let let him keep his dreams, let him embrace his mythology and his delusions. But Peter says, I am going to die. But it isn't a dream. It isn't a delusion. I want you to think this through for just a moment. How can Peter talk so calmly, so emphatically, with such certainty? Because the story isn't a myth, and it isn't a legend, and it isn't a dream, and it isn't a delusion, and it isn't simply hearsay. The story of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus into heaven was written by individuals who were constant companions and eyewitnesses of the events that are outlined in your Bible. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is rooted and grounded in historical fact, not hysterical fiction. Peter denies the claims that the apostles and the disciples gathered around a campfire and made the whole thing up. Some people suggested that they took this natural figure and turned him into a supernatural figure by borrowing supernatural elements from the mystery religions that were around at that time. And nothing could be further from the truth. The life and the death and the facts surrounding the life and the, and the ministry of Jesus come from historical Renditions. Look closely at the word majesty in verse six. The word is mega liotes. It's the same word used in Luke nine forty three and Acts nine, verse twenty seven. It means splendor. It means magnificence. It means to pile attributes one on top of the other. And because the word relates to Jesus as Christ, it rightly means majesty. Even the enemies of Jesus, even the enemies of Christianity, even the enemies of the gospel are hard pressed to overthrow the facts. You'll remember the religious leaders, even in their own day, they did not dispute the fact that Jesus opened blind eyes and deaf ears. They did not dispute the fact that he brought dead people back to life. You know what they disputed was how he did it. What's the trick? Their position was. He did this because he was in league with the devil, that his supernatural and miraculous power came from the prince of darkness. That's why in John chapter eight, he said to the religious leaders in his own day, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. People may want us to change the meaning of the gospel. They may want us to change and rewrite the purpose of the gospel. They may want to discourage us from believing the gospel. But millions, millions testify that it was through Jesus Christ that they experienced forgiveness of sin. Freedom from guilt. Deliverance from bondage. Deliverance from addiction. Even more can testify to the reality that, hey, look, Jesus saved me and brought peace In my life, in verse 17, he writes, for he received from God the father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, the word excellent glory translates another form of that word magnificence. Megalopropes, it means honors befitting a great person. It means honors befitting a person who is majestic and magnificent. In other words, what Peter is saying is, I was one of those people, along with James and John, who marched up that mountain, who saw the veil of humanity lifted, who saw the whiteness of the effulgence of the glory of God shine forth from His being. I heard the voice from heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to think about this. He's saying, I am the one who followed him up the mountain, who saw Moses and Elijah discussing his trip to Calvary and all that it would mean. Now, again, I want you to think this through. He's on the precipice. He's on the verge. He's on the very, very edge of the end of his life. And he remembers the truth about Jesus when the cloud lifted and. And the glory departed, Jesus was alone with his disciples. And he never. Ever. Forgot it. Richard W. DeHaan wrote, the truth of the gospel is confirmed historically and scientifically and experientially. You can stake your life on it. You can stake your eternal destiny on it. That's exactly what Peter did. That's exactly what I've done. That's exactly what the New Testament is asking you to do. Do you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a deep conviction about the truth? How would you describe your faith? Would it include a deep conviction that the Bible's representation of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is accurate? Are you deeply convinced that what you believe about Jesus is true? Are you able to explain your faith and support your belief with biblical evidence? Are you convinced? Are you convinced? Are you convinced that a glorious future awaits you when you reach the end of life? Or... Are you still unsure about what you believe? Are you still fearful about your future? The writer of Hebrews says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith. Would you like to draw near to God with a sincere heart? Have you made the serious decision that you want to know Him and love Him and accept His sacrifice for your sin and to place your trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you receive Him as your Savior? Will you begin the daily habit of praying and reading your Bible and embarking on a journey of becoming acquainted with the basic doctrines of the historical faith? Are you willing to experience the assurance of your salvation and grow spiritually as a man and a woman of God? That's that's why I'm here. That's why I exist. We exist to worship God. We exist to disciple the saints. And we exist to tell them the story. We'd love to help you grow. We'd love to point you to the resources that will help you love and trust the Bible and trust its reliability. To help you answer critics questions. We'd love to help you understand the basic teachings of the Bible and how historical, biblical Christianity really is different from every other world religion. Only Jesus offers forgiveness in his sacrifice and reconciliation to God. We would love to help answer the questions that you have about Christianity and the Christian experience. But the Bible says this without faith, it's impossible to please him. Each and every one of us have to make the difficult decision. Do I believe this is true? Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray that you would extend an invitation that only your Holy Spirit can extend. I pray that the sinner would become deeply and profoundly aware that their sin has separated them from you. I pray that they would become deeply and profoundly aware that there is real forgiveness in Jesus. That when the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to what he has to say. That Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except by me. Lord, we pray that we would put aside our fear and our prejudice and we would believe the truth about what Jesus says. And Lord, I pray for that person. Who wants to have a deep conviction of the truth. Who wants to have a confident assurance of their faith. Who wants The freedom of knowing that they can enter into an into an eternity free from guilt and free from sin, free from shame. Lord, I pray that that person would receive you even now. I pray that they would bow their head in their heart and they would pray a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a savior. I believe that Jesus is that savior. And Lord, I believe that he's the Lord and that he's willing to forgive my sin. And so from this day forward, I want to know him and love him and serve him. Lord, I pray that you would place within my heart a hunger to read my Bible and to pray every single day. And to learn the truth the way the Bible talks about it. And then to walk. And humility and integrity. Knowing that I can trust what the Bible says is being true. In Jesus' name. Amen.